On the morning of January 15, 1947, Betty Bersinger, a housewife in Los Angeles, was walking down South Norton Avenue with her daughter Anna to run some daily errands. At the time, the Lemert Park neighbourhood was pretty underdeveloped. The path had been laid, but the houses had yet to be built on that block. Lots of neighbourhoods were left half-finished at this time, just one of the many things the war put a halt to. As the pair approached a fire hydrant, Betty noticed something unusual near the edge of the path, buried beneath the weeds. As they drew closer, she strained to make out what it was. It began to take shape. How strange, she thought, as she looked below at what seemed to be a discarded store mannequin. Betty edged even closer to inspect it, when to her horror, it dawned on her what she was actually looking at. This was no mannequin. She looked below and saw a nude woman. She was so pale her skin was almost porcelain white. Betty glanced over the body and the true horror of what she had just found came over her. Below was a decapitated woman, posed with her arms above her head and wearing a Glasgow smile. Terrified, Betty grabbed her daughter and ran to the nearest house to telephone the police. In her shock, she failed to identify herself on the phone. I stopped at one house. Uh, when I crossed, uh, got through the block and got to the next block, there were homes built on that block. I rang the doorbell and a woman came to the door and I told her, I said, you know, I said, I saw something strange up the street and I said, I just think I ought to call somebody and have them come and look at it, you know. The further I walked away from them, the further I thought, well, gee, I wonder if it could be something, you know, more than just a mannequin. It just didn't seem to me that that made much sense. (laughs) So anyhow, I thought I better call and tell the police and at least have them come out and check it. And so so I called them and I had somebody answers in the police station and I told them what had happened, that I'd seen this. And uh, I said, I thought somebody ought to come out, you know, and check it out. And they said, fine, they would. And I hung up, and that was the end of it. Betty had just discovered the body of Elizabeth Short, or the Black Dahlia, and soon to be one of Hollywood's most infamous unsolved crimes. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Red Room, brought to you by ACAST. Earlier last year, we revisited 10 of my favourite topics and discussed them on the podcast. We dove into internet subcultures, alien civilizations, secret societies and lots and lots of dark history. This season, we're exclusively looking at true crime and unsolved cases. We'll examine 12 cases, some you may have heard of, some you may have not. Either way, I'll try and give you a fresh perspective when I can and look at any new evidence that has popped up over the years to help us wrap our head around the case. As I always say over on Patreon when discussing true crime, remember that these are or were real people. They are real victims with real lives of their own, with plans for the future and with families in some cases. So please just keep it respectful in the comments and I'll always try to do the same when covering their case. This week's case is one that got me into true crime. And it's one that I'd say almost all of you have heard from. The Black Dahlia. It's a story that has become somewhat of a myth. It has evolved many times from TV shows, references in music videos, films, books, and of course the topic of many true crime podcasts just like this one. And this story has evolved so much that the story, in my opinion, 
is often spoken about as if it were a movie or it were an urban legend. And the reality of this savage and brutal crime is almost forgotten or glossed over. An unsolved case will always captivate us, and the mystery is kept alive because we are left with no closure and lots of room for speculation. But today I want to discuss the terrifying and brutal nature of the Black Dahlia case, or the murder of Elizabeth Short. I want to talk about its cultural impact and ask why, of all the unsolved cases in Hollywood in the 40s, the murder of Elizabeth Short continues to fascinate us almost 80 years on. So before we go in depth on Elizabeth Short's final few days, let's take a look at who she was, her background, her childhood, and all of the events that led up to her untimely death in 1947. Most importantly, I want to try and understand who Elizabeth was as a person and what she wanted from life before it was brutally taken away from her. Elizabeth was born on the 29th of July 1924 in Hyde Park, Massachusetts. She was the middle child, she had four sisters, and they were born to their parents Cleo and Phoebe Short. The Shorts moved to Medford, Massachusetts in 1926, and this is where Elizabeth would spend her childhood playing with her sisters. The 20s were a stable and happy time for the Shorts. Her father, Cleo, ran a miniature golf course company, and the business was doing pretty well. They were no means rich, but they were happy, and they were provided for. That would all come crumbling down pretty soon, though, since right around the corner was the biggest stock market crash in history. In 1929, like millions of other Americans, Cleo lost everything. This was devastating to him, and in 1930, he left his family without any warning. It was presumed that Cleo, like many of those who lost their livelihood that year, had actually taken his own life, since his car was found abandoned on a local bridge. With no money and no husband, Phoebe Short was left to raise her daughters alone. She and all five of her daughters moved into a small apartment, and Phoebe got to work as a bookkeeper obviously believing that her husband was dead. Life for the Shorts became tough, as it was for many Americans after the crash. On top of this, Elizabeth Shorts suffered from various chronic illnesses as a child too. She had severe and repeat cases of asthma and bronchitis. Eventually, she actually needed lung surgery when she was around a young teenager. Still, the family powered on and made do with what they had. Elizabeth at one point was sent to Miami during the winter times in the hopes that a warmer and more humid climate would improve her breathing problems. As we all know, deadbeat men usually come crawling back after breaking your heart or just about when you've got your life back together and Cleo Short was no exception to that rule. In 1942, 12 years after going missing and abandoning his wife and five daughters, Cleo decided to write Phoebe a letter. In the letter, he admitted to abandoning their family without a cent of support and that he had decided to move to California to, quote, start over. Must be nice. Understandably, Phoebe did not accept this apology. But Elizabeth yearned to know her father. He left them when she was just five years old. Of course, the fact that her father was now living in sunny California appealed to her too, She had always fancied herself as an actress, 
or a starlet and saw this as a sign and an opportunity to start over in a new city. Elizabeth decided that it would make sense for her to move to California and pursue her dreams, all the while getting to know her father after all these years. This was against her mother's wishes, but Elizabeth knew what she wanted. She moved to California and moved in with her father, Cleo. Elizabeth hadn't seen her father since she was a young girl, and he had not been a father to his little girl or any of his children in 12 years. So the honeymoon period of this relationship was pretty short. The pair clashed immediately, and Elizabeth got to know the real version of Cleo, flaws and all. Not just this imagined version she had dreamed of all these years. Likewise, Elizabeth was a fully formed woman now. She was no longer a child, and she didn't want to be treated like one either. She moved out of her father's apartment after just one year. She got a job as a clerk in Camp Cook, an army camp around 10 miles north of Lompoc, California, where she worked until August that year. But her time in California would come to an end when she was arrested for underage drinking in Santa Barbara. She was 19 years old at the time and decided to move back to Miami. While back in Florida, things began looking up for Elizabeth. She met a decorated army pilot called Major Matthew Michael Gordon Jr. And the two fell madly in love. They had plans to marry once the war was over. But life was not to be so kind to Elizabeth. In just one of the many tragic events in Elizabeth's life, her soon-to-be husband would die in a plane crash about a week before the war ended. Heartbroken by the loss of her fiancé, still healing the abandonment from her father and feeling utterly lost, the now 20-year-old Elizabeth was at a complete loss of what to do with her life. This is when she decided to move to Southern California, This time without her father in mind, she was doing it this time for herself and herself alone. You'll often hear Elizabeth Short being referred to as a budding starlet. And while there are stories from friends and acquaintances of her claiming that she had these aspirations of being in a movie, she was never really a working actress. Elizabeth likely did have vague aspirations of ending up a movie star, just like many young and beautiful women did at the time in Hollywood. She likely loved the idea of the glamorous world of Hollywood and she did join the casting line for work as an extra, but nothing much would come of it. Elizabeth would rent a room off Hollywood Boulevard in 1946 and she'd find work mostly as a waitress and this is how she paid her bills. However, Elizabeth never really knew stability and it's said that she was a bit of a drifter. Drifter from job to job, hotel to hotel, apartment to apartment, boyfriend to boyfriend. There's accounts told by some people she knew that she was a known liar, usually innocent lies, to make her life seem a little bit more interesting or glamorous, but lies all the same. She had friends picking up bills left and right, and often when they grew sick of her lies or her stories of why she couldn't pay them back, they'd kick her out or they'd move on from her. Her exact living situation and the run-up to her murder is a little murky too, but some stories we'll discuss today will give us an insight into her frame of mind at the time and why she may have been more vulnerable or trusting to strangers. Between 1946 and 1947, Elizabeth spent the time becoming a bit of a Hollywood socialite. She may not have been a famous actress, but she was a known figure on the bar scene 
despite the fact that she quit alcohol after her underage drinking incident. She was known mostly due to her signature look. She had jet black hair, light blue eyes and was always seen wearing head to toe black. She had a tattoo of a rose on her left thigh and it was said she'd like to sit at the bar so it would show off a little. She enjoyed the shock factor. She did what many struggling young women on the Hollywood scene did at the time and lived off dinner dates and parties, which made it likely she became known to some shady characters, some of whom may have only wanted one thing from Elizabeth. Her mother would later recall that Elizabeth as a teen was a very affectionate, sweet girl. If she was out all night, she always stopped in my bedroom to talk and she would always talk and talk and talk and tell everything of what she had done. In December 1946, Elizabeth told her friends she was going to the Bay Area to spend the holidays with her sister Virginia, but she never made this trip, and her sister later said that she hadn't heard from Elizabeth for a very long time. This is just one of the mysteries in the timeline of Elizabeth's last days. Instead, Elizabeth would go to San Diego, around two hours from Los Angeles, With no plan and nowhere to go, she bought a ticket to a late-night movie theatre, hoping to be able to get some sleep as the movies played. It was here she met a girl called Dorothy French. She was a cashier at the theatre, and she pitied Elizabeth when she noticed that she clearly just needed a place to stay. Dorothy invited Elizabeth to stay with her mother, her younger brother, and herself until she got on her feet. As was typical of Elizabeth, though, she would overstay her welcome. And she stayed with the Frenches for an entire month, coming and going as she pleased, mostly on dates with various men. By the end of her time at the French household, they understandably were pretty anxious for her to leave. Elvira French, Dorothy's mother, described Elizabeth as depressed and moody and claimed that she had a feeling that Elizabeth was in trouble and might have been mixed up with the wrong crowd. While in San Diego... Elizabeth would meet a man called Robert Red Menley. He was a married salesman from LA who was there on business. He left his pregnant wife at home. He met Elizabeth while driving home. According to him, he saw her on the corner, looking a bit lost, and he offered her a ride. She accepted after some hesitation, but the pair instantly hit it off. They'd go on a few dates over the course of two weeks. Again, the details are murky, mostly because Red began backpedaling on his relationship with Elizabeth after she turned up dead, most obviously because he was married and because of the obvious suspicion around him when she was found brutally murdered not long after they met. He claimed in police interviews that their nights spent in motels and dinner dates were strictly platonic. According to him, Elizabeth asked him if he would drive her back to LA on one of these dates and he agreed. He said he dropped her off at the Biltmore Hotel in downtown Los Angeles on January 9th, under the assumption that she was there to see her sister, Virginia, at the hotel. The last time Robert Red Manley saw Elizabeth, she was making phone calls in the hotel lobby. He had an appointment at 6.30 and he was satisfied that Elizabeth was safe in the hotel with her sister waiting upstairs, so he left. When he waved goodbye to Elizabeth, he'd be the last person to see her alive on January 9th, 1947. (laughs) 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. On the morning of January 15th, when local resident Betty Bersinger found Elizabeth, her body was mutilated so severely that she was unrecognisable. I'm going to describe some of the injuries found on her body now, not for want of gore or for OTT detail, but I think it really helps to bring home just how violent this murder was. So some discretion for the next bit is advised. There were multiple lacerations to her face, but most notably she was cut from her mouth to her ear, creating what is known as a Glasgow smile. Elizabeth's torso was completely severed in half and the incision was extremely precise. This was not done by your average killer, it seemed. Her tattoo on her thigh had been cut off and the piece of loose skin was inserted inside her. Her intestines had been removed and they were tucked beneath her. It was said that the entire crime scene looked staged. It was methodical and it appeared to be done by someone who knew what they were doing. Despite the scene being so gruesome, not a single drop of blood was found. In fact, Elizabeth had been drained of all her blood and her corpse had been washed thoroughly, all leading police to conclude that she had to have been killed elsewhere and the body was dumped here to be found. The authorities labelled the victim as the city's first Jane Doe of 1947. Infamous Hollywood reporter Agnes Aggie Underwood was one of the first reporters on the scene and she described it as the following in her autobiography. In a vacant lot amid sparse weeds, a couple of feet from the sidewalk lay the body. It had been cut in half through the abdomen under the ribs. The two sections were 10 or 12 inches apart. The arms bent at the right angles and the elbows were raised above the shoulders. The legs were spread apart. There were bruises and cuts on the forehead and the face, which had been beaten severely. The hair was blood matted, front teeth missing. Both cheeks were slashed from the corners of her lips almost to the ears. The liver hung out of the torso and the entire lower section of the body had been hacked, gouged and unprintably desecrated. It showed sadism at its most frenzied. Many of the lacerations seemed to occur after Elizabeth had been killed. The autopsy decided the official cause of death was hemorrhage and shock due to the concussion of the brain and lacerations of the face. The investigation was led by the LA Police Department 
Elizabeth was identified by her fingerprints. She was on the database from her arrest for underage drinking when she was 19. An early report by the LAPD described the scene. The body was comparatively free from blood smears or stains, which clearly indicated that it had been washed some time after death. And, they added, there were strangulation marks on the neck and definite rope or tie marks on both lower legs and arms. Some other important factors about the crime scene were the following. There were possible strangulation marks on her neck and, as we learned, definite rope marks or tie marks on lower legs. Rigor mortis had not yet set in, meaning Elizabeth was probably killed after 1am on January 15, 1947. Upon removal of the body by coroner's deputies, it was found that the grass underneath was still wet with dew indicating that it had been placed there after the dew fell in the early morning hours, around 2 a.m., January 15, 1947. When the officers requested narcotics testings from her organs, they were informed that these vital organs had been, quote, misplaced and had probably been thrown out at the time they were cleaning up the laboratory. The murder of Elizabeth Short became a media sensation. Not only was there a young, hopeful wannabe actress, brutally discarded at the side of the road, but she was beautiful, and as we noted, a little quirky. The day after Short's body was found, the Los Angeles Examiner sold more copies than it had any other day, except when it announced the Allied victory of the Second World War. Someone who ran a drugstore near one of Elizabeth Short's apartments was questioned by the press And when asked to describe her, he said, Her hair was jet black and she liked to wear it high. She was popular with the men who came in here and they got to calling her the Black Dahlia. A movie called The Blue Dahlia was released the year beforehand in 1946 and Elizabeth's penchant for all black outfits and her black rose tattoo meant the name was perfect fodder for a media and tabloid frenzy. The name The Black Dahlia stuck like glue, providing the perfect hook for every story going forth about the murder of Elizabeth Short. It was used in all the headlines reporting about her murder from that day on. But it wasn't an instant media sensation. Let's rewind a bit. One of the lead detectives in the case, Finnis Brown, said that between January 15th, the day her body was found, and the 23rd of January, only one front-page story was dedicated to the murder of Elizabeth. So what changed? In one of the many... Many bizarre twists in this case. On January 24th, someone presumed to be the killer mailed a manila envelope of Elizabeth's belongings to the Los Angeles Examiner and other Los Angeles papers. The envelope included a letter using cut-out words from newspaper clippings that said, Here is Dahlia's belongings. Inside the envelope were Short's birth certificate, business cards, photographs, various names written on pieces of paper, and an address book. All of the contents of the envelope had been cleaned with gasoline, which was similar to how her body had been cleaned before it was dumped, leading authorities to be pretty certain the letter was definitely sent by the person who killed her. After this, every single paper was packed with stories about the murder of Elizabeth Short, or as she was now referred to as the Black Dahlia, The media and the LAPD at this time were very chummy. 
There was lots of correspondence between the two and, as mentioned before, there were photojournalists and reporters on the scene pretty much immediately. Journalists at the time would rely on getting information from the police for exclusive stories and the police would freely give them the scoop to get their names in the papers on their own terms. It was even routine for journalists to attend high-profile autopsies at the time as well. So there were plenty of journalists in the room while the county coroner conducted the autopsy of Elizabeth Short's body, which is pretty heartbreaking to think about. One of the grossest parts about the media frenzy around her murder was a phone call made by a man who identified himself as Wayne Sutton, reporting as a journalist for the LA Independent. At this time, Elizabeth had been identified by the police, but her murder was not nationwide news yet, and the police had not contacted her family yet to tell them of the murder. On the other end of the line with Wayne was Phoebe Short, Elizabeth's mother. Wayne would introduce himself to Phoebe, claiming that her daughter, Elizabeth, had just won a beauty competition and that he wanted to call her to get some background info on her. Her mother was ecstatic. To her, it seemed that Elizabeth's dreams of making a new life for herself in Hollywood were coming to fruition after a life of so much hardship. So she boasted about her daughter, calling her beautiful. By the time of the phone call, however, Elizabeth had been missing a week murdered and her body had just been found mutilated and identified by her fingerprints. This journalist was simply on the hunt for information, for a story. Two of his colleagues were in the room with him listening as Wayne got more and more information from Phoebe who kept gushing about Elizabeth and at one point he asked his editor for help of what to do with this excited mother on the other end of the phone. That was when he decided he couldn't keep up the lie anymore and he decided to deliver the almighty nuclear bomb to Phoebe that he was lying, and their daughter hadn't won a beauty pageant, that she was in fact murdered, she was dead, all to a woman who ten seconds ago thought her daughter was skyrocketing to success. Phoebe then had to fly to LA because she was needed to identify the body. In the media circus that surrounded the murder of Elizabeth, she was portrayed as a promiscuous party girl. Some speculated she was an escort, a femme fatale, others that she was just a mistress. And although Elizabeth certainly didn't live a conventional life to some degree, when you read her letters home, it's clear that none of this is true. Yes, she went on dates from time to time, but only three of these seemed to be intimate relationships. She definitely twisted some truths in her time, but it seemed to be more of a defense mechanism rather than a manipulation tool. Elizabeth, like many other female victims of sexually motivated crimes, was being blamed for her own death. Meanwhile, her murderer walked free. Detectives Harry Henson and Finnis Brown were assigned to the case from the beginning and they remained the primary investigators through the years that followed. So remember the envelope of belongings and the address book that was sent to the press? Well, Detective Brown would say, To my estimation, the person sent that in because they wanted to publicly gloat over the fact that they had been successful in their crime and they got a kick out of it. The address book quickly became central to the case. Detectives believed there was a high chance that Elizabeth knew her killer. Most victims do. When they inspected the book, there was one name they focused on that was written on its front. Mark Hansen. 
Mark was a Hollywood nightclub owner who knew Elizabeth well and he rented her a room when she was in LA. He would later say that he asked Elizabeth why she went to San Diego and she told him a screwball was bothering her and she decided to go there before she went north to visit her sister. The address book originally had about 400 pages, but many had been torn out. Investigators compared the writing with the letters Beth sent to her mother and determined that most of the writing in the book was hers, but there were three or four pages written by someone else. Several partial fingerprints were lifted from the envelope and sent to the FBI for testing, but the prints were compromised in transit and couldn't be properly analysed. Authorities claimed there had been no reliable leads to prove the whereabouts of Elizabeth Short from the time she left the Biltmore Hotel at around 10pm on January 9th until her naked, bisected body was found on Norton Avenue on the morning of January 15th. As with any high-profile murder case, this attracted lots of false confessions, a phenomenon that I personally can really never get my head around. According to Detective Harry Hansen, There were 33 confessions to the murder by 1951 and from what I've read, a total of 500 people, men and women, have confessed to the crime over the years. One of these confessions was from a man called Joseph Dumas. He said a few days before her body was discovered, he and Elizabeth got blackout drunk together. He said he woke up in a different state the next morning, completely alone. When asked if he knew about the murder, he said yes and he said he was convinced he did it when blackout drunk, citing that he could get rough with women when he had one too many drinks. Of course, this raised red flags because Elizabeth, according to all her friends, didn't drink or smoke. Upon his confession, police did a little digging, and records showed that he was at a military base on the day that Elizabeth was killed. Another confession was of Daniel S. Voorhees, who confessed to her murder on January 28, 1947. He asked police to meet him on a street corner where he said, I'm so sick, I can't stand it any longer. I killed the Black Dahlia. Take me to jail. I want to get it over with. He later told LAPD detective E.R. Barrett that he met Elizabeth Short on Hill Street two weeks earlier and that he had met her in 1941 and dated her several times over the years. When police cross-referenced this, they found it couldn't be true. Elizabeth was a young teenager in 1941 and living on the East Coast with her family. A total of 750 investigators from the LAPD and other departments worked on the case in its initial stages. There were massive searches all over the LA area, scouring for any potential evidence, but the searches yielded nothing. A $10,000 reward for information leading police to the killer was posted, which is ironically what caused many of the false confessions. Some of these confessors were even charged with obstruction of justice. Despite all the efforts from police, of which there were many, the case ran cold in spring 1947. Detective Finnis Brown blamed the police for compromising the investigation, but in 1949 a grand jury convened to discuss the inadequacies of the LAPD's homicide unit. This was based on their failure to solve numerous murder cases, especially those of women and children in the previous several years, the Black Dahlia being just one of them. Through the jury, more information was yielded about Elizabeth, but nothing that gave them any more leads as to what happened to her on her final day. So, who are the suspects? As we said, many men were interviewed by police. Some confessed, although they were thought to be false, 
and others were suspect, but the LAPD just didn't have enough evidence to charge them. The case is so infamous that, of course, it attracted lots of sleuths over the years, as well as independent researchers and journalists who have all claimed to have cracked the case. So let's run through some of the most convincing and interesting theories. Theory number one is that the Cleveland torso murders and the murder of Elizabeth Short are directly linked. Lots of people, some LAPD officers included, think there's a link between the Black Dahlia murder and the Cleveland torso murders. Between 1934 and 1938, 13 severely mutilated bodies were discovered in the Kinsbury Run District and surrounding areas of Cleveland, Ohio. The victims were mostly working girls or drifters, and the killer had dismembered most of the bodies with surgical precision, just like the Black Dahlia case. This was another cold case that would be a whole other story for a different day, but much like the precise cuts on the Cleveland Torso murders, the cuts on Elizabeth's body were done with such skill that the authorities highly suspected someone in the medical field. Just when the police in Cleveland thought the murderer had ended up in a mental institute, a letter arrived from California. In it, the alleged torso killer says he has left Cleveland and has come to California and now he is performing medical experiments on his guinea pig victims. The torso murderer signed his letter as DC or Doctor of Chiropractic and claimed he conducted these experiments to advance science. Whoever the torso murderer was, he was not just a skilled surgeon, but a clean freak. All of the torsos that showed up in Cleveland showed attempts to clean the bodies, and Elizabeth Short's body had been so meticulously cleaned, there were still bristles from a brush embedded into her skin. Police had also determined that Elizabeth had been likely tortured before being killed, and that she was restrained with a rope. In Cleveland... Several victims had exactly the same type of marks as Elizabeth did. The torso slayer's victims had also been arranged in sexually suggestive positions, just like Elizabeth's body had. The police served a warrant to the USC Medical School, which was actually near where Elizabeth's body had been found. But after multiple interviews and background checks, they came up with absolutely nothing. Theory number two the red lipstick murder. So a month after Elizabeth was murdered, another body was discovered in LA that appeared to mimic the Black Dahlia case. The victim's body was discovered by a construction worker who stumbled upon the naked body in the grass. The victim, Jean French, had dark hair and her face was also badly beaten. There was a very suspicious message scrawled on her stomach in bright red lipstick. Fuck you, BD. Many people believe the BD stands for Black Dahlia, but police never officially linked these cases. Some officers, including LAPD homicide captain Jack Donahue, stated publicly that they believe the Elizabeth Short and Jean French murders were committed by the same man. And you can see why. Two bodies turning up mutilated in very similar circumstances, within a month of each other, and the initials of one is written on the body of the next victim. It's a little too coincidental. The murder of Jean French also ran cold. And to me, one of the most tragic parts of Jean's story 
is that her case is mostly only spoken about within the context of the Black Dahlia, just as I am doing now. Trust me, I see the irony, but this brings to light a moral conundrum often found within true crime content, just like this podcast. What constitutes a murder being newsworthy? How many murders are ignored for every media sensation that takes over the news cycle? And just how heavily are the investigations hindered due to eyes being cast elsewhere? Theory number three is by a woman called Janice Knowlton. She had been undergoing therapy for years when in 1991 she had a pretty big breakthrough. All of a sudden, decades of old memories from her childhood came flooding back to her and the reality of it was horrific. Janice was undergoing a new kind of therapy called removed memory therapy, a technique where a patient undergoes various forms of therapy in order to retrieve memories that their psychotherapist believes they have repressed into deep crevices of the mind. Advocates of this method of therapy believe that traumatic experiences can be buried within the subconscious and they can be retrieved through ORMT techniques. Janice's memories were horrific and they included her father murdering three women in front of her, one of whom she claims was Elizabeth Short. Janice said that her father was having an affair with Elizabeth and that she was staying in a makeshift bedroom in their garage when she suffered a miscarriage. This caused, according to Janice, her father to become so enraged that he beat Elizabeth Short to death with a hammer, used a power saw to cut her in half, and upon failing to dump her body in the ocean, he left it on the side of the road where Betty would find it on January 15th. Janice was so convinced to the authenticity of her memories that she persuaded police detectives to search for evidence of the Black Dahlia murder and that of another murder she believed her father committed by excavating a vacant lot the site of her former home. But nothing to warrant a criminal investigation was ever found here. Janice was written off as someone who was more than likely traumatised, but not a victim of exact abuse she was so convinced she experienced. She died at 67 from an apparent accidental overdose. In the mid-90s, it became evident that RMT is not all it's cracked up to be and that it's actually more likely to plant false memories in our mind than it is to uncover any hidden truths. Current research shows that only 10% of victims of abuse are likely to fully suppress the memories so deeply that they have absolutely no memory of it. And it's not recommended by mainstream ethical and professional mental health associations. Theory number four, Leslie Dillon. Leslie Dillon was a 27-year-old bellhop. He was an aspiring writer and a former mortician's assistant from Oklahoma. And he'd become a suspect in the Black Dahlia case after he wrote to LAPD psychiatrist Dr. J. Paul DeRiver on October 1948. Dylan was living in Florida at the time when he wrote to Dr. DeRiver to share his theories on the case. He claimed that his friend, Jeff Connors, was part of a conspiracy to kill Elizabeth Short with Mark Hansen. Mark Hansen, you'll remember, was that nightclub owner and movie theatre owner whose name was inscribed on the address book that was posted to police claiming to be Elizabeth's. He was also one of the last people to speak to Elizabeth on the phone and allegedly has ties to the fringes of the Los Angeles underworld. Dylan claimed that Jeff Connors killed Short on behalf of Hansen, 
because she threatened to reveal an affair that apparently, quote, was not considered proper by the average person. From the get-go, Dylan's behaviour was disturbing. In his letters, he mentioned an intense interest in sadism and sexual violence and said he hoped to author a book on Short's case soon. Suspicion began to arise when he let it slip that he knew details about the case that had not been released publicly, specifically about the removed tattoo on Elizabeth's leg. At this point, Dr. DeRiver believed that Jeff Connors was probably a figment of Dylan's imagination and that he was really who killed Short. So the pair kept their correspondence and Dylan eventually agreed to meet with Dr. DeRiver in Las Vegas. But by this time, Dr. DeRiver was completely convinced that Dylan was who killed Elizabeth Short. So he brought an undercover LAPD officer with him, disguised as his driver. Once they met Dylan, they agreed to drive back to California in the same car and Dylan not knowing that everything he was saying was being witnessed by a police officer. The police officer noted that Dylan spoke at length about his time as a mortician and how he knew how to bleed a body dry. He would also recall a conversation about Elizabeth Short, where Dylan suggested that the body was cut in half because, quote, the person would want to see how far his penis went into her. They drove to LA and stopped where Elizabeth's body was found. Dr. DeRiver noted that Dylan seemed agitated and uncomfortable at being there. They then drove to San Francisco, where Dylan claimed Jeff Connors lived, but this hunt was unsuccessful. When Dylan offered up more intimate details about the crime, including saying he believed she'd been murdered in a motel room, he was taken into custody by the undercover officer and transported to LA. Bizarrely, police though discovered that Jeff Connors did exist and that he had lived in LA at the time of the murder and was employed by Columbia Studios, a favourite hangout of Elizabeth Short's, where he worked as a maintenance man. So after holding Dylan for a week, the police had to release him on lack of evidence. Jeff Connors was also let go. Mark Hansen was never arrested. There just wasn't enough information. But the police could never account for Dylan's whereabouts between January 9th and January 15th, 1947. Leslie Dillon would file a $100,000 claim against the city of Los Angeles, but he dropped it after it emerged that he was wanted by Santa Monica police for robbery. According to the Rolling Stone, author Pew Eatwell believes that Dylan did in fact kill Elizabeth Short at the behest of Hansen, who it was confirmed later he worked for at one point. She also believed that Jeff Connors was involved and she believes that Mark Hansen's connections to the police, in particular Officer Finnis Brown, helped him get away with the crime. She believes that they killed Short at the Astor Motel where Dylan had reportedly stayed and where motel owners Henry and Cora Hoffman admitted finding, on January 15th, one of their cabins, quote, covered in blood and faecal matter. Witnesses who stayed at the hotel noted seeing a dark-haired girl who resembled Elizabeth Short, as well as a man who fit Mark Hansen's description. But this still remains just a theory. Theory number five, the Steve Hodel theory. The final theory we'll be discussing today is a wild story and largely it's thought of as the most convincing. It comes from Steve Hodel, a retired LAPD detective who is actively investigating the current day Dahlia lead. He's written two books, the first titled Black Dahlia Avenger, published in 2006, 
and the second titled Black Dahlia Avenger 2, published in 2014. The story starts with Steve's father, George Hodel, who died in 1999, leaving Steve with his belongings to sort through. His relationship with his father, though, had always been very strained. George was a doctor with a distant personality and he abandoned his family shortly after Steve's ninth birthday, eventually moving to the Philippines. As he went through his father's possessions, Steve found a photo album tucked away in a box. In it were what you'd expect, family photos. But deep towards the back, there were two pictures of a young woman, her eyes cast downward, curly, deep black hair. Steve still doesn't know why he had this idea, but he looked at the images and he thought to himself, my God, that looks like the Black Dahlia. And since that day, with countless hours of research under his belt, he asserts that his father, George Hodel, was the true murderer of Elizabeth Short. In over 25 years, Steve has diligently risen through the ranks of the LAPD, establishing a reputation as an unfaltering homicide detective. So like any good cop, he began digging and the details began to add up. His father, George, was a prominent LA surgeon at the time of the murder, which Steve argues would explain the surgical accuracy with which Elizabeth's body was cut. Steve writes that his father revered the painter Man Ray, and that there were cuts that looked strikingly similar to Man Ray's style found on Elizabeth's body. Steve also has dug up a cache of evidence, including law enforcement files that show his father topped the LAPD's list of suspects at the time of the crime. Steve filed for a Freedom of Information Act to retrieve the FBI files on the murder and other information that the Bureau had collected on his father. A handwriting expert determined that there was a strong likelihood that his father's writing was on the notes the killer sent to the LAPD, but the results, as most handwriting analyses are, were inconclusive. Steve looked through his childhood home and would come across a folder of receipts. One of the receipts showed a purchase, made a few days before Elizabeth Short's murder, of 10 five-pound bags of concrete, the same size and brand found near Short's body that police believe the killer used to carry her in. Several former cops involved in the case would tell him that they heard the department believe the killer was a doctor who, quote, lived on Franklin Avenue. That's where the family lived at the time of the murder. Steve would go on to write his book with his theory and it was a New York Times bestseller. And then that's where Steve Lopez enters. He was a columnist at the LA Times and he received a copy of Steve Hodel's book and decided to write about it. While fact-checking his column, he asked the DA's office for more information. Who complied? And Lopez received access to an original Black Dahlia case file. Buried in this file was a bombshell. Not only were the police considering him a suspect, but they had bugged George Hodel's home and caught him discussing the case, as well as some pretty scary audio that sounds like another murder. The tape was from February 19th, 1950, and he's overheard saying this to someone on the phone. Realised that there was nothing I could do. Put a pillow over her head and cover her with a blanket. Get a taxi. Expired at 12.59. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they might have figured it out. Killed her. And then later, supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia, they couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead too. Steve's investigation did not stop the Black Dahlia though, and he believes he's located a trail 
that connects his father to dozens of murders stretching across California and he even thinks his father may have been linked to the Zodiac Killer. So, although we've spoken through multiple theories today, it's important to note that the case remains completely unsolved. Nobody really knows what Elizabeth Short got up to on what's now known as her missing week, that is the time between her last sighting on January 9th and when she showed up murdered on the side of the road on January 15th. What we do know is that her murderer walked free, and whether he killed a month later, like the Lipstick murder, or carried on to be a notorious serial killer like the Zodiac, we may never know his true identity. Ultimately, the murder of Elizabeth Short shows us how off the rails an investigation can become when the media frenzy begins, suspects go unnoticed, and crime scenes get contaminated. Add that up with a corrupt police force who may have connections to some of the chief suspects, and it's hardly a mystery how the Short family were never given an answer as to what happened their beloved daughter and sister Elizabeth. I'll be back next week with another episode of Red Room, and next time we'll be taking a look at an infamous Irish case with an equally catchy name as the Black Dahlia, this time we're talking about the Scissor Sisters. Bye for now. Remember to subscribe, leave me a review, and I'll talk to you all very soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.